Ecclesia is a new church trying to live out the way of Jesus in Princeton, New Jersey. We pray this teaching invites you to love Jesus and people more deeply and to embrace the full life that Jesus offers each one of us. Grace and peace to you. During my junior year of college, I took a C.S. Lewis literature class with Dr. Wayne Martindale. He was a reserved, gentle, and passionate man who had dedicated the better part of his academic career to writing about and teaching C.S. Lewis. His wife of many years had recently died. And while he was standing up in front of my class, covering the allegories in Voyage of the Don Treader or passionately reciting pieces from Till We Have Faces, he was also in a state of mourning. And it seemed to me that the despair and pain that bore down on his life during that semester also intensified the profundity with which he taught and read C.S. Lewis. I've never quite witnessed anything like that before in my life. He cried nearly every class and, while stabbed by the piercing literary shards of his hero and what it seemed to us, friend, C.S. Lewis, the students left the classroom weepy-eyed and ruminating about life as they walked into the dreary Chicago fall weather. There was one class that I'll never forget. We were reading Paralandra from the Space Trilogy, and I can remember very little about the passage itself, um, which characters were discussed, what role the passage played in the developing plot. All I recall is that whichever character occupied those pages... They were in the snare of heavy darkness, feeling alone, hurt, without hope. And in this passage, they were given a promise of hope. It was clear that this promise was allegorical for heaven, the new heavens and the new earth. I also remember that halfway through the passage, Dr. Martindale seized seeming to choke on his tears, and it looked like he was on the verge of weeping. And he paused, and looking up at the ceiling, he sighed as if only to himself, and said, It's too good to be true. We all knew he believed what we were reading. Um, now today we're covering Jeremiah 30, which Danielle had just read, um, so I'm going to go into a little bit of historical context. Um, after the death of King Solomon, uh, the nation of Israel split into two kingdoms, Israel to the north and Judah to the south. The northern kingdom lived in sin and idolatry and fell to the Assyrian Empire in 722 BC. The southern kingdom of Judah remained caught in cycles of obedience and disobedience, godly kings and ungodly kings. During the beginning of Jeremiah's life, King Josiah came to rule. After a string of disobedient and idolatrous kings before him, he commanded that the temple be renovated, during which the book of the law of Moses was found. And after reading the law, Josiah repented from the horrible sins of Judah, especially during the reign of his father Ammon and began a religious reform founded on exclusive devotion to Israel's God, Yahweh. The temple in Jerusalem once again became a place of sacrifice and idolatry was rooted out. 
But Josiah's reform was cut short when he was killed in a battle, and his heir, Jehoaz, did not continue the path of reform that Josiah had initiated. Meanwhile, the Assyrian Empire was being swallowed by a new superpower, Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, was renowned for being a brutal and pitiless tyrant. His scribes would boast of the severe destruction he brought upon his enemies, and he was at that time preparing to move his armies southward, and Judah lay directly in his path. This is the context into which God called Jeremiah to prophesy. Imminent destruction looming ahead. Jeremiah 1, 3 through 10 records God's call to Jeremiah, telling him to prophesy. God tells Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you came out of your mother, I had consecrated you. I hereby appoint you to be a prophet to the nations. I hereby put my words in your mouth. See, I'm appointing you today over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to pull down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. God had assigned Jeremiah his mission even before he was born. And it was a terrible task. Jeremiah had to warn the people of their consequences, of their sins and idolatry. Destruction was on the horizon and the people hated Jeremiah for his message of doom and gloom leaving him separated from the community, a hated outcast among the people God had called him to serve. So much of the book of Jeremiah records the prophet's woes as he bemoans his life and the mission set before him. In chapter 20, Jeremiah says, O Lord, you have enticed me, and I was enticed. You have overpowered me, and you have prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all day long. Everyone mocks me. For whenever I speak, I must cry out. I must shout violence and destruction. For the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and a derision all day long. And in chapter 11, he says, But I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. And I did not know it was against me that they devised schemes saying, let us destroy the tree with its fruit. Let us cut him off from the land of the living so that his name will no longer be remembered. And in chapter 15, again, he says, Woe is me, my mother, that you ever bore me. A man of strife and contention to the whole land. I have not lent, nor have I borrowed. Yet all of them curse me. Jeremiah is caught in a land doomed for destruction, pleading with Israel to listen to the warnings God has commanded him to proclaim. But he is hated and reviled, cast out and alone, feeling as if God has thrown him to the wolves and then abandoned him. The passage for today, Jeremiah 30, tells of the horror facing Israel, the people God had made a covenant with and had promised to lead unto salvation. It says in verses four through seven, these are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. Thus says the Lord, we have heard a cry of panic, of terror and no peace. Ask now and see, can a man bear a child? Why then do I see every man with his hands on his loins like a woman in labor? 
Why has every face turned pale? Alas, that day is so great, there is none like it. And in verses 12 through 15, it says, For thus says the Lord, Your hurt is incurable. Your wound is grievous. There is no one to uphold your cause, no medicine for your wound, no healing for you. All of your lovers have forgotten you. They care nothing for you. For I have dealt you the blow of an enemy, the punishment of a merciless foe, because your guilt is great, because your sins are so numerous. Your hurt is incurable and your wound is grievous, it says. These are horribly striking words, depicting a dreadful reality where help is too far off to matter. Where does our hope come from? I think of Dr. Martindale. I also think of the past year. I know many of us here at Ecclesia, and several in particular have had a really hard time this past year. COVID brought sickness under which we and our loved ones have suffered and some even died. Quarantine has cut us off from so much of the circulation which was the lifeblood of our communities. I know many of us have had one of the loneliest, most difficult years of our lives thus far. Rates of poor mental health have skyrocketed. Some people have suffered worse than others. Suicide rates have escalated hand in hand with the isolation brought about by the pandemic. I know this probably sounds melodramatic to some of you, um, but others have experienced what I'm talking about or know those who have. I'm a chaplain candidate in the Army National Guard. Um, this summer, I had to help with a memorial ceremony for a 23-year-old medic who committed suicide two days after ring shopping with his girlfriend. It was a very disturbing experience. The parents and the would-be fiance hated one another. And as the girlfriend screamed and writhed during the ceremony, the parents sat stoically, not twitching an eyeball in her direction. It was heartbreaking that not even the death of a mutual loved one could soften their hearts towards one another. Soldiers cried at the scene and one, the soldier assigned to escort the girlfriend, wept with her. I wondered what toll the events ensuing COVID had had on the young medic and to what degree they had contributed to bringing him to his final moments. The chaplain who I had been shadowing during the ceremony asked me to give him and his chaplain assistant a devotional after the ceremony was over. And I decided to share with them a sermon and a prayer by Soren Kierkegaard, from which I had found great comfort um, in during that period in which I thought spoke about the young man who had ended his own life. Kierkegaard was in many ways like Jeremiah. He was called the gadfly of Copenhagen because his message against the nominal cultural Christianity of Denmark was to the great annoyance of the powerful in society. He suffered much ridicule and abandonment because of it, and he too often felt hopeless and abandoned by God. 
It's likely that today he would have been diagnosed with depression or bipolar disorder. And I'd like to share some of the Kierkegaard passages that I shared after that memorial ceremony. In a sermon, Kierkegaard meditates over Matthew eleven twenty-eight, where Jesus tells a crowd, Come here to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And Kierkegaard asks, What is it to labor and be heavy laden? What does Jesus mean when he says he will give us rest? In this Kierkegaard passage, he says, For not only does the one labor who works by the sweat of the brow for the daily bread, not only does the one labor who endures the day's heat and toil in a lowly job, oh, the one who struggles with heavy thoughts also labors. The one who out of concern bears the care of one or many also labors. The one who is immersed in doubt also labors, just as the swimmer is said to labor. Those who are heavy laden, for not only is the one heavy laden who visibly carries a heavy burden, who visibly is in difficult circumstances, but also the one is indeed heavy laden whose burden no one sees, who perhaps even labors to hide it. And not only is the one heavy laden before whom there, there perhaps lies a long life in privation, in pain, in troubled recollection, but also the one for whom, alas, there seems to be no future. And when asking what it means to have rest in the midst of this, Kierkegaard says, so also it announces the promise I will give you rest for your soul. Rest, that is what the exhausted laborer, the weary wanderer wishes, and the sailor who is tossed about by the sea seeks rest, and the weary old man longs for rest, and the sick person who lies restlessly on the bed and finds no alleviating position, he craves rest. And the doubter, who finds no foothold on the sea of thoughts, he craves rest. Oh, but only the penitent properly understands what it is to pray for rest for the soul. Rest in the only thought in which there is rest for a penitent, that there is forgiveness. Rest in the only utterance that can reassure a penitent that he is forgiven. Rest on the only ground that can support a penitent that satisfaction has been made. And later he says, for whether you have come today to seek rest in your youthful years or at an advanced age, oh, when your final hour comes and in the hour of death you are abandoned and alone, then you will crave as the last thing in the world to which you will no longer belong. You will crave what you crave today, rest and forgiveness and grace, and that all things shall be made new. Later on, Kierkegaard reminds us that we do not go to just any human being. We go to God, who knows all human sorrow. Jesus, who was himself tried in everything yet without sin. His soul has also been sorrowful unto death. Yes, he has experienced all human sorrow more grievously than any human being. 
and was at the bitter end abandoned by God when he bore all the sin of the world. And he not only understands your sorrow, but he desires to give you rest. Kierkegaard says, it is hard not to be understood. But what help would it be to you, after all, if there was someone who could entirely understand your sorrow, but could not take it away from you, could entirely understand your strife, but could not give you rest? In Jeremiah, we see the extent of Israel's hopelessness, their grief, their strife, how they labor and are heavy laden in need of forgiveness and grace. And as Dr. Martindale's tears helped me see, it is precisely when we feel the depth of our sorrow and grief on this earth, when we're mourning the loss of a loved one, when Babylon waits outside the gates of Jerusalem, waiting to massacre its people and exile the survivors. When I think about the final moments of dread experienced by a 23-year-old kid who feels for himself that there is no future. It is when we feel the weight of this, that the gravity of the hope promised us in Jesus Christ strikes us through our core. We read the sections of despair in Jeremiah 30, foretelling the destruction that would befall Judah, but they are followed by God's promises of hope. Verse seven and eight say, it is a time of distress for Jacob, yet he shall be rescued from it. On that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will break the yoke from off his neck and I will burst his bonds and strangers shall no more make a servant of him. When life has become a darkened story, when your hurt is incurable and your wound is grievous, when you are alone and pray to terrible thoughts, thus says the Lord in verse 10, do not be dismayed, O Israel, for I am going to save you from far away and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease and no one shall make him afraid. For I am with you, says the Lord, to save you. When Dr. Martindale cried in class, he was thinking about heaven. In Revelation, we read, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. And there shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And yes, it's too good to be true. I'd like to end by sharing with you that prayer by Soren Kierkegaard that I shared with the chaplain and his assistant after that memorial service. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, great is thine infinite kingdom. Thou who bearest the weight of the stars and who governest the forces of the world through immense spaces. 
numberless as the sands are those who have life and being through thee. And yet thou hearest the cry of all creatures and the cry of man whom thou hast specially formed. Thou hearest the cry of all men without confusing their mixed voices and without distinguishing one from another in such a way as the play favorites. Thou hearest not only the voice of one who is responsible for many others and so praise to thee in their name as if his high function could bring him nearer to thee. Thou hearest not only the voice of one who prays for dear ones as if he could thereby attract thine attention, he who is privileged in having the dear ones. No, thou hearest also the most miserable, the most abandoned and most solitary man in the desert, in the multitude. And if the forgotten one has separated himself from all others, and if in the crowd he has become unknown, Having ceased to be a man except as a number on a list, thou knowest him. Thou hast not forgotten him. Thou remembers his name. Thou knowest him where he is, retired, hidden in the desert, unperceived in the crowd, in the multitude. And if in the thick shadows of dread, in the prey of terrible thoughts, he was abandoned by men, abandoned almost by the language men speak. Still thou would not have forgotten him. Thou would understand his language. Lord, our Father, man cries to thee in the day of distress, and he gives thanks to thee in the day of joy. Oh, how wonderful to give thanks when man understands so easily that thou art the giver of good and perfect gifts. When even the earthly heart is at once ready to understand and when even earthly prudence speedily consents. More blessed though, it is to give thanks when life has become a darkened story. More blessed though, to give thanks when the heart is oppressed and the soul darkened, when reason is a traitor in its ambiguity and memory is mistaken in its forgetting, when egoism recoils in fright, when human wisdom resists, if not in rebellion, then in discouragement. More blessed then to thank God for the one who thus is thankful, truly loves God, he dares to say to thee, Thou, all-knowing God, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest I love thee. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.ecclesianj.com.